Welcome to Focus on Success with Fazia Costi. Our program is designed to help you with executive function challenges. Our guest experts offer perspective, experience, and ideas to improve different aspects of your life. Now, here is your host, Fazia Costi. Good morning. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm Fazia Costi, and today uh, we are having an absolutely wonderful guest by the name of Dr. Randall Bell. I'm honored to have him on the show. He is literally, I think, been on every uh, talk show on the planet. <laughs> He's an incredible um, guest, and I'm really excited to talk to him. He's an economist and sociologist. His research has taken him to 50 states and seven continents. His cases have included the World Trade Center, the Flight 93 crash site, Hurricane Katrina, as well as the John Benet Ramsey case, O.J. Simpson, and Heaven's Gate Mass Suicide Mansion. He is—he has an absolutely impressive background. So welcome to the show, Dr. Bell. Fazia, it's an honor to be speaking with you. I'm looking forward to our time together. Well, I'm really, um, I'm excited to talk to you. I think you have a fabulous uh, new book coming out. Um, you are the author of several books, actually, but the most recent one is uh, Post-Traumatic Thriving, the Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. Yes, it came out in the middle of COVID, but I've been working <laughs> on it for 10 years. I'm pretty excited about it. Wonderful. Um, you know, I, I would really like it if you could talk a little bit about your background. What um, what got you in the field of trauma? Uh, most people grow up thinking, I'm going to be a police officer or a doctor or a lawyer, but nobody wakes up one morning when they're five and say, I'm going to, I'm going to work with trauma. How did you get into that field? Well, Fazia, it, it was just a journey I never dreamed I would have, you know, as a kid and as, you know, going through college and everything. Uh, but I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in a little town called Fullerton, which is the home of Leo Fender and Fender Guitars. My dad worked for uh, Fender and uh, really had a great childhood, but I was born with a congenital heart defect. A lot of people don't realize that when I, they meet me because I'm a tall, white, straight guy from Orange County, um, but I, I was born with, uh, you know, with a disability and I had open heart surgery when I was 11. And uh, so uh, after the surgery, the surgery was a complete success. And the doctors patted me on the back and said, go have a great life kid. And, but, the, but there was this trauma that I had inherited from birth that I was never, never got resolved. You never learn about that in school. And yet, in my opinion, unresolved trauma is the number one problem facing humanity because particularly childhood trauma, you know, drugs and alcohol and workaholism and self-medication, those are all symptoms of unresolved trauma, in my view. So as I progress through my career and have had and still have this uh, incredible career of studying disaster sites all over the world, as an economist, I meet the people behind the statistics. And I was really uh, intrigued with some of them really kind of broke through and did something really remarkable in spite of really being uh, having a horrible setback. And I learned from these people. And eventually I learned how to resolve my own trauma from this, uh, from this childhood heart problem I had. So that's in a nutshell, kind of the, the journey. It's kind of gone from economics and number crunching to understanding the people behind the statistics and then ultimately being the beneficiary of, of their wisdom. 
Wow. Can, can you talk a little bit about how you resolved your trauma? Well, I did what what I talk about in the book, post-traumatic thriving, because because the this while there's all kinds of different traumas, um, the the solutions look pretty much the same for all of us. Um, one thing uh, I learned was what we call sitting in the fire. I learned that term from my volunteer work at San Quentin Prison, where uh, you you sit down and you talk about it. Because un- I, I made the classic mistake of bottling it up inside, not talking about it, and. Um, that's the that's the number one mistake in prison the inmates talk about their childhoods talk about things you know growing up in a family with not enough money or their dad was in prison and that was a complete embarrassment they open up about this garbage to resolve their trauma and so i think the number one step is just what we're doing right now i'm talking about it that that has a very healing effect rather than balling it up inside so i want to back up just a little bit because uh, I just want to make sure that all the listeners are on the same page with us. Could you define what trauma means? Sure. There's what I call in the book, the difficulties. I have a long list, but it's disease, death, divorce, destruction, disaster. It's it's anything that hits us, whether it's unexpected, whether it's chronic, whether it's acute, anything that really you know knocks us down in life where we have a hard time getting back up. So what, what something might uh, you know hit you, and, and it's, you know, you shake it off and, and it might hit me or someone else and really knock us down. So there's, it, you know, everybody's trauma is valid in so far as it knocks us down. We have a hard time getting back up, whatever that looks like. Right. So a, a lot of times when you see people, or at least when I see people who've had a lot of tra- trauma, a lot of different trauma, um, they tend to overreact to things. Do you see that when, with the people that you work with, the overreaction? Well, I try, I've seen so much in the way of destruction um, that I try, whether they're overreacting or not, I, I don't know that I'm in a position to to say because I haven't been through what they've been through. Um, gotcha. And, and, you know, I'd rather somebody overreact than underreact. I underreacted. I pretended it never happened. So, I, I you know, pick your poison, but... There's, you know, and you, and you never know how you're going to react till it actually happens to you. We can sit in our armchairs and think about it and watch TV and other people's trauma. When it actually happens to us, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we had talked um, a little bit about the trauma. So what are the choices that you have when you face trauma? How do you, how do you address it? Well, the book has 15 chapters, but they're divided into three sections, which really kind of answers your question. The, the, there's the dive stage where we get knocked down. Then the middle, the second section is survive, where we go from dive to survive, get back on our feet. And then what the book is really all about is the third section, and that's thrive. That's where we not just get back on our feet, but we tap into that energy from the trauma and utilize it in, in really positive ways to fuel ourselves to, to thrive. So that's the way I look at it. Dive, uh, survive, and thrive. Can you give us an example of those three steps? I, I'm sure you've seen many. Uh, well, yeah, sure. Um, I, what I do in the book is I interweave science. So I did a lot, a lot of binders and binders of research uh, from academics because the science is so good and so helpful. And I interwove it with actual stories. So let's pick one. Um, one of my favorite stories in the book is of Jerry, Jerry Jewell. I, I went to high school with Jerry. Um, she was born with a disability. Um, she has cerebral palsy. 
And uh, after high school, she went and did stand-up comedy, of all things, which is a really tough gig. I mean, yeah. it, it, to stand up in front of people and make people laugh, particularly when she was uh, has had this uh, disability her whole life. I just saw Jerry about a week ago. We had dinner, and um, and uh, she starred on the TV show Facts of Life. You might remember that, Cousin Jerry on Facts of Life, and she just starred on uh, HBO's Deadwood, and she's a thriver. In spite of her trauma, she got back on her feet. So what I did in the book to really kind of answer your question is I interviewed these people, really kind of sat and listened to their journey through the dive, survive, and thrive stages documented it and then and then coupled it up with the science to give a complete picture. So she's a great example of what that story kind of looks like. Thank you. What makes somebody thrive? I mean, I, I've I've had my share of trauma in my life and I'm sure most people have. And um, you know, I I don't see everybody thriving after trauma. So what puts somebody in that position where they're thriving versus not thriving? I think that to go from dive to survive to thrive or from survival to thrive um, is a combination of choice. One that wants to do it and also having the tools. Um, It's hard to do if you don't know the tools. And the tools are things like I just talked about, sitting in the fire and talking about it rather than burying it. The other tool would be what we call grounding. The first time I ever meditated in my life, I was in my 50s. I didn't know what meditation was. Um, and I thought it was, um, you know, some spiritual spiritual practice on the other side of the world with Hindus and Buddhists. And um, and it is, <laughs> but, but it's also a secular thing. The first time I ever meditated, I was sitting between, literally between two convicted murders in San Quentin prison. That was one of their tools that they learned so that they could... Um, heal from their trauma, uh, express regret for the, for the crimes that they committed and turn their lives around. Um, so that's one tool, uh, sitting in the fire. The other one is, is we call it grounding in, in the prison system because uh, some people don't like the word meditation or are uncomfortable with it or, or yoga or Lamas, anything. But deep breathing exercises are remarkably simple. They don't cost a dime. And they, uh, out of out of Harvard University, there's 12 studies from Sarah Lazar to show that they've actually done brain scans on the healing of the brain from just simply deep breathing, as simple as that sounds. So there's two tools right there, sitting in the fire and grounding. That's helps us go from survival to, to thriving. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, I, I've had a couple shows on um, meditation. I personally meditate. I try to do at least once a day, sometimes twice a day. It's it's an incredibly powerful tool to have. And so I, I really appreciate that. Reinforcing that I think really helps listeners um, with whatever trauma they're dealing with. Um, how do the five stages of grief factor into trauma? And, and maybe we can back up a little bit and talk about what are the five stages of grief and then talk about how they um, factor into trauma. Sure. Well, yeah, the five stages of grief are basically uh, the five first chapters of the book because <laughs> um, uh, that, that research is so uh, so good. 
what I do, the chapter one's on shock. Uh, that actually precedes the five stages of grief. But what I do is I, I explain the physiology of the brain, what actually happens with trauma. When, when we're hit by a trauma, um, we have actually three brains. The outer brain is the human brain. The midbrain is the mammal brain where we feel emotion. The inner brain is called the reptilian brain. That's what science calls it. And so when trauma hits, we're kind of going through our day and we're thinking with our human brain, and our emotional brain, then we get in a car wreck and those two brains turn off and our reptilian survival brain turns on. And so all the memories of our trauma are in an area of the brain that aren't really equipped for good memory or for um, what, what, what's really going on is our, it's nature's instinct to just survive, to just come out of this thing alive. Um, so I, I talk about that, um, that physiology right up front. And then to your question of the five stages of grief, then then after shock, there's there's anger, there's denial, uh, there's bargaining, uh, and normally uh, the last of the five stages is is depression. And if people and all of these, whether it's depression or anger or denial, these are all normal as long as we don't hurt someone or hurt ourselves. These are to be expected. They're normal. Uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of. But if you land on depression for more than two or three months, it's really time to, to get some help and do something about it. Can we talk a little bit about what that might look like for somebody going through the stages of grief? Well, sure. I mean, for, you know, the what it looks like is that that memory of the trauma resides in that inner uh, reptilian brain. So that's why you hear stories of of uh, soldiers coming back from Afghanistan or something. And when they hear a car backfire, they, they hit the deck, you know, it re-triggers that instinct from, from a, a trauma that they experienced. And that's, that happens with our uh, soldiers, but it's the same thing is it could be, you know, a really horrible breakup in high school with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or something and driving by that high school and having been re-triggered of that memory. Or it can be a song you hear on the radio that remembers, reminds us of a horrible divorce or a smell that reminds us of a lost loved one. Anything that re-triggers us um, and puts us into that fight, flight, freeze mode where we're all, you know, we're all charged with high levels of emotion. Uh, that's what we want to address. We want to uh, we want to heal from that. So those memories of those traumas, whatever they look like, pass through our minds harmlessly and don't cause us that extreme adrenaline rush emotion. That's that's our objective. Nice. Thank you for explaining that in such depth. I really appreciate that. I, I think it's important for people to really understand, you know, in depth what, what trauma looks like and, and what grief looks like. Um, so... Why do you use stories of people suffering from trauma in your book? What, what is the purpose of that? Well, I wanted to address the science and the, and the clinical aspects of it, but I wanted to bring the, the ideas alive through actual people doing remarkable things, you know, and to show that what this really looks like in real life. I mean, Jerry, um, who I just shared uh, a little bit about, you know, in high school, that's no fun for a young lady to go through high school with a disability. And, and there were a lot of, uh, there was bullying going on. There was a lot of uh, where she was mistreated. I never saw it or I would have bullied the bully, but I, uh, but that, that occurred. Um, and, it, you know, being left out of the parties, being left out of the school dances and that kind of thing, that that's a, that's traumatic for, for any, for anyone. Um, so, 
I want to I want to just talk about the brain chemistry and what's going on with neurotransmitters. I want to explain what it looks like in real real life as well. Sure. You know, and it, when you were talking about Jerry, it sounds like there was layers of trauma. Like she had this disability at birth and then there was the bullying that kind of layered on top of that. And, you know, there was other things that happened because of, because of one trauma, there was another trauma. Um, do you see that a lot in, in your, um, in your work? Yeah, yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there. There are layers of trauma and, and it, you can also be re-traumatized um, with, because, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book is a gentleman, his name is JC. I actually met him up in San Quentin. He was uh, convicted of murder, went to prison for 22 years. He's convicted as a 17 year old kid. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, when you, when you talk to JC and find out about his childhood, it was, it was so profoundly sad I said to him, if I had if I had, had your childhood, I would have done something wor- worse than what you did, or I'd be dead. I mean, it was just horrific. So there are these layers and these layers of guilt, these layers of shame, uh, layers of being bullied or abused by others, uh, or acting out in violence and then suffering the guilt from that. It, it just piles on. And that's why this discussion that we're having is so critically important, because if we can really get at this topic of unresolved trauma, uh, and really address it in productive ways. I, I'm not kidding. This may sound like oversell, but we can really heal as a planet uh, if if we can really get on get on board with with this discussion. You know what? I, I agree with you. I definitely agree with you. Uh, one of the points that you had made um, is by college age, 66 to 85 percent of all people have been impacted by trauma. And these can this can lead to crime, addiction, or anxiety, which is sounds like why you might be working with the prison system. Would that be an accurate assumption? Yeah, I do volunteer work through a secular program in San Quentin called uh, IPP, Inside Prison Project. And I also have done years of volunteering at the homeless shelter in my hometown of Laguna Beach um, with homeless folks. And I've these principles really work. I mean, if you can take a person in prison and and have and they uh, have a, a change of heart, or you can get a homeless person to address the real issues going on in their life, not the sugar-coated issues, but the real issue, and they get reestablished with their families, they get a, on their job, and they stay out of those addictive uh, sinkholes, uh, this stuff really works. And I've seen it over and over again. Um, do you have any examples of people that you've worked with that maybe were homeless, and, and maybe we can talk about why they were homeless? and how they kind of got out of that? Well, sure. I mean, you know, frankly, growing up in somewhat of a a privileged community as I did, I was, I tended to grow up a little bit judgmental. It's uh, it's embarrassing to admit that, but it's true. But then I, I learned, I got to know some homeless people in the, in the shelter and my views just crumbled. And I, I've, I've rethought that completely. And, and frankly, I'm embarrassed that, that I had that position, but for an, an example was a woman in our um, homeless class. I would teach a, a class once a week on life skills, and I would talk to them as if they were business executives. And we'd talk about time management, negotiation skills, and things like that. And they really appreciated it. Aside from buying a homeless person a sandwich, just to talk to them is is really uh, a, a, as big or bigger gift than than you know having lunch to eat. 
Um, but just talking to him, uh, one, one woman was in my class, I'll call her name Lisa, just to protect her identity. She was an executive. She was an aerospace executive. She was in a car crash. It wasn't even her fault. She had horrible back injuries and she got addicted to opioids. Well, you know, that wasn't a path that she chose. And in her addiction, she couldn't give it up. She was hooked. She It got so bad. Her husband divorced her. Her kids didn't want to talk to her. She lost everything. She started living in her car. Then she lost the car because she sold it to buy more opioids. And she was on the street. So she was one of these women on the street that you see with, with the signs saying, you know, homeless, can you help at the, at the freeway off ramp? Well, it's easy to be judgmental of that person, but understanding what she went through um, gives you a little bit of, uh, you know, at least gave me a little more compassion. Well, she applied the principles we talked about in that life skills class, and she did a ton of work. I described the whole process in the book, so it's all there. Um, And she started doing it one little habit at a time, doing this and doing that, taking the advice. Of course, it was three steps forward and one step back, but the overall trend was good. And um, she got back on her feet. She was given a job in in one of the area's restaurants as a dishwasher. She would always showed up five minutes early, just like we talked about in class, going and doing a little bit extra for the boss. Uh, She got promoted from part-time to full-time, and then she got promoted to being the um, uh, the hostess that sat people and then to a server. And now she's the manager. She manages a very posh restaurant in town and she was homeless. So that's kind of from the, the whole spectrum of the story to give us who haven't been homeless a little bit of insight of what, what it really looks like. Most people I think would, um, you know, going back to the being judgmental, most people would assume that, you know, when you're homeless, there's something wrong with you, or there's, you know, there's there's issues that bring you to that point, and that it would never happen to me, kind of thing. Um, and and I think you've kind of taken that myth away. Um, how much trauma do you think is going on with people who are homeless? Do do you think everybody who's homeless is dealing with some kind of trauma? Well, there's there's a spectrum there. There's some people who have gotten so into drugs that they have given up on themselves. And when they've given up on themselves, um, as as earnest as our attempts are to help them, it's really really tough. Um, but and and there's others who really want to get back on their feet and just don't know how. There's uh, drug addiction is just you know an absolutely horrific vice. But oftentimes it's really masking the pain from something that happened to them earlier. So if we can sit in the fire and talk about the childhood traumas, what it's like to grow up and seeing an abusive, you know, uh, your your mom being abused or, or these really ugly things, as difficult and ugly as those conversations are, if we can have them, it's kind of like doing surgery. If we can, we don't just slap a Band-Aid on a, on a wound. We have to dig it out. We have to sanitize it. The antiseptic stings. It hurts. But that's how we're going to get authentic healing in a, in a physical wound. It's the same thing with our emotional wounds. Um, that's what helped me to heal from my, my whole uh, thing with my heart surgery was just going through these steps of talking about it. So with the homeless, there's always a story and sometimes they did do, do something wrong. Sometimes they made a horrific mistake. JC made a, a big mistake. Uh, so, you know, we all make mistakes. But um, and sometimes they were abused, or, or something happened to them, uh, whether it be they were abused or or it was just a matter of 
of, uh, you know, getting a disease, which they had no control over. So the, the thing is to really suspend the judgment, uh, save that for another day or, or not at all, and just sit down and talk to these folks, see what's going on, and see if we can get at really over time the source of the problem and deal with that. Yeah, and, and I also think that there are the layers that impact, the layers of trauma that impact things. I think most people can handle one trauma. Um, but when you pile on, you know, like for example, your, your, um, homeless woman that you were talking about, Lisa, who had the car accident and then the opiate addiction, and then her husband left her and then her kids didn't want anything to do with her. It's just one trauma after another. It can be quite overwhelming. Yeah, Um, you're right. The layering on effect is profound. We, yeah, it can be called compound trauma. And we call, we, you know, again, I talk about that in post-traumatic thriving. It's kind of a long book. Um, and, and I would advise people to just take it one chapter at a time. Don't skip ahead to the happy ending, um, you know, stick it and go through each process. But one of those things is addressing the fact that trauma is often, as you say, it's not one thing it can be layered on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, what are the most important tips you can offer people dealing with trauma today? Um, you know, and, and I know that a lot of people are dealing with COVID, so we, we could address that a little bit as well. But what are the most important tips that you can offer somebody dealing with trauma? Well, the, the first, first thing I say is make sure you're in a safe place before you start going through the book. Um, you know, if you're in an abusive relationship, get out of it. You know, have the courage to get out of it. I was on the board of directors of um, Denise Brown's and Nicole Brown Simpson's charitable foundation. And I met a lot of women who were, for example, in these abusive relationships, you you first, before you can heal from trauma, you got to get away from whatever is going on um, and get to a safe place. And then, um, and then just uh, give ourselves a little bit of slack for being human, being in a very imperfect world where we're all kind of in this together and, and just work through the steps one by one and, uh, and be reasonable about it. And, and also a really big tip is what I call rinse and repeat. I use that term throughout the book to realize that you may get to a more advanced stage of maybe experimenting with various uh, self-care techniques or gratitude or forgiveness. You may be in that last section of the book, but you may have flashes where you revisit the anger or revisit the shock or revisit the depression. That's absolutely okay. It's normal. It's natural. Uh, It's not a linear line where you're just always going up and up and up at some predictable rate. That's not the way it works. So just kind of understanding the entire landscape of trauma, what we're going through is normal, kind of takes the pressure off. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like going through the stages of grief. You know, you, you can be in anger and denial and then go back into anger and then go back into denial, then go to bargaining and then still drop back down into anger. So it's definitely very fluid and um, it changes. So I really do appreciate you giving us such a uh, wonderful in-depth um, answer to that. Um, we have just a couple minutes before we take a break. I would love for you to talk a little bit about how people can go get your book. Um, the book is called Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. And um, I believe you have a website called drbell.com. Is that where people can go get your web your book? Yeah, you can go to drbell.com. That will link you to Amazon. The book's in all the bookstores, but I love, I love having this conversation because I think it's just in my own tiny little way, making things a little bit better. 
Um, uh, but yeah, visit me at drbell.com and, and the book's everywhere. Yeah, so please go get a copy of Dr. Randall Bell's book. Um, it's uh, pretty pretty awesome. And we can talk a little bit about his other books as well. If you're interested in getting one of his other books, uh, if you go to drbell.com, they're listed on there as well. The Four Cornerstones of Success, Leo Fender, and The Real Estate Damages. Or Real Estate Damages, sorry. There is no the in front of it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, feel free to go get a copy of any one of his books, but specifically Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to go to my website, executivefunctioncoachaz.com. You can go to my website and um, send me an email. If you have questions about any guests of our any guests that have been on the show, feel free to send me questions there. You can also sign up for a free consultation if you'd like to work with me. You can also subscribe to our upcoming magazine called Executive Function Magazine that will be launching January 10th of 2022. And you can go on there and subscribe. Um, get yourself a copy. It is a free magazine. It's digital and it's quarterly. And we have some pretty amazing individuals writing um, articles on a variety of different topics, um, such as ADHD, nutrition, autism. So it's going to be an absolutely wonderful um, magazine to get. And um, once again, it's free. So feel free to go subscribe. Um, the website is executivefunctioncoachaz.com. And uh, next week, um, make sure you join in for Parenting Pulse. We're going to talk about modeling behavior. And we'll be back after these messages. And we're going to talk to Dr. Randall Bell after these messages. Thank you for listening. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you are struggling with organization, time management, or other executive functions, Bozzi Acosti is ready to put you on the path to success. Visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com. Bozzi works with in-person clients at her Phoenix, Arizona office or with clients anywhere across the country remotely. Mention that you heard this ad from the Focus on Success radio show and receive a free initial consultation with Fazia, plus $50 off an intake evaluation, a $300 value. Visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com or call 480-648-1122. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Focus on Success. To reach Fazia Costi or her guest on the live show, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Fazia at executive function coach AZ.com. Now, 
back to Focus on Success. Hi, welcome back. I'm Fazia Costi, and today we are talking with Dr. Randall Bell. He's the author of Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. Welcome back, Dr. Bell. Fazia, it's great to be back with you. Yeah, this is such a, a fun interview, and um, I, I'm, I really feel honored to be able to talk to you because it's wonderful seeing somebody have such a long career just helping people, and, and that's a really good at least for me, that's a really good feeling to have for your career. You know, you've made a difference. So I would love to talk a little bit about the survival stage um, that we talked about during break. Can you can you describe what that is? Well, sure. I think I think we've done a good job of kind of covering the dive stage and just you know getting knocked down. We and we've all been knocked down. So I think we've we've we understand that. Survival is getting back on our feet. It's kind of dusting ourselves off and kind of assessing the whole situation. Life may now look very, very different now that we've lost a loved one or we go through a divorce or we have a a disease. Um, You know, talking about layers of trauma, you know, I had my childhood trauma. And then last January, I I got COVID myself. And it really, there were nights I went to sleep. I'm not trying to sound dramatic, but I didn't know if I'd wake up. Um, I was out for at least three, four, five months where I just could not function. It was really disabilitating. So there's always these layers of trauma. So getting out of that, I, you know, frankly, I had to go back and reread my book. (laughs) (laughs) Refresh your memory on what you needed to do. (laughs) I was having a hard time, but you know, the, the idea of survival is just to just some days I had the energy to get up and go to the sink and get a glass of water. Some days, one day I went and walked around my backyard, one lap around the backyard. I mean, wow. just these little steps to try and keep the ball rolling in the right direction. Uh, it was really that that kind of pathetic in my case. Um, but well, I've known a few people who've had COVID and they've described it very similarly. Oh, so yeah. I can, yeah. yeah. And I feel my, I'm fortunate because I'm back to running five miles a day. I've got my life back, but it was a long haul, rough deal. But one of the things that's really cool about the survival stage, I kind of get excited about it, is the experimentation stage. That's where um, we lay out all these different, it's like a menu in a restaurant, but we're at this world's greatest restaurant where you have every menu and you can look it all over and pick new activities, new things whether it be, hey, you know, I'm going to take up that hobby I wanted to do, or I want to start uh, in the, you know, going to the gym and I've never lifted weights in my life, or I'm going to start writing. Uh, I want to be an author or whatever it looks like and experimenting. The the list, the menu can be kind of overwhelming because it's so big. There's so many opportunities. But now that I've kind of been knocked down and I'm getting up, I'm going to think of some new things to do. One of the stories in my book was a lady who lived in a luxury home with her husband. Uh, she was a TV producer. In fact, I met her on a on a TV show I was on. And uh, her house, she came back one day and a landslide had smashed it wide open. Her, her oh. whole life, all her belongings, everything was just was were just uh, obliterated by this landslide. Well, her and her, her husband had always dreamed of having a ranch where they outfitted Western movies. 
but this life of luxury that they had stuck, you know, as crazy as it sounds, they couldn't really realize their dreams. Well, because of that disaster, now they've actually got that ranch with and they're outfitting uh, movies, Western movies. They're living their dream life that wouldn't have happened had the trauma not kind of woken them up. So survival wow. is about experimenting with new new stuff, new ideas. Wow. That's a pretty dramatic example. Um, that's pretty wild. It almost, uh, it, yeah, I was, I was actually thinking like they could have actually manifested this, you know, changing their life plan. It's just amazing. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Can you give us any other examples of maybe, um, I know we had talked a little bit earlier about your friend, Jerry, um, how she went from, how she dealt with the survival stage or maybe your friend, um, I think you said J J C. Yeah, J C. They yeah. How did they handle the survival stage? Well, Jerry, after high school, her family said, you know, we have really two choices with your disability. We can buy you an easy chair and get you a TV, and you just make you as comfortable as you can be for the rest of your life, or we can kick your end out and make you earn a living like everyone else, and you know, face life. And they went with option B. They they and so she got you know a job you know sacking groceries or something just to you know pay some bills. But then she started auditioning at the comedy clubs in Hollywood, and she got a gig. You know it was like like anything. It, it was always kind of the off day with the off audience. You know, but she she did well, and she just kind of kept at it. So her survival was basically having a a job to pay some bills, but at the same time, reaching out for her dreams and taking the the kind of the low-lying menial um, uh, jobs in the comedy thing until she kind of built a name for herself. Wow. And, And how long did it take her to get to the point where she realized her dreams, where she felt where where she was done with the survival stage and she was actually in in thriving. Well, what happened with with Jerry is she just stuck with it. And, you know, you'd have audiences that wouldn't laugh at the jokes or even boo her off the stages, you know, and it was, but, you know, Jerry is that special kind of person that just kind of kept going. And she kind of, you know, Rather than taking it personally, she'd say, okay, what did I do wrong here? How could I, you know, adjusted this or adjusted that? You know, comedy is a thing of timing, impeccable timing and getting a sense for the audience. So she just kept kind of taking advice from people that knew what they were doing uh, and making those little refinements and adjustments. So she got to the point where she could go on stage and people were just buckled over and stitches laughing. And, uh, you know, as often happens in Hollywood, if you reach that level, uh, somebody came into the comedy club, was, was casting a TV show, Facts of Life. And thought, thought, hey, Jerry could have a really a great role on this show and bring some diversity. Jerry is the first person in history to land a starring role with a disability. Uh, and so she was really breaking new ground. She's since spoken at the White House three times, once, uh, twice with President Reagan, I think once with President Obama. Um, but that's what the turnaround looked like is just having, having this goal, having this dream. It was very deliberate and she just kept going despite the setbacks. Well, so her perseverance sounds like it's what got her from survival to thriving. 
you know, yeah, she's just resolute. Yeah. And she's still that way today. And she's a wonderful person to, to hang out with because she just, you know, radiates love and she radiates, you know, kindness as does JC, you know, he, he's kept at it with, he had a life term in prison, but he just kept taking classes. He earned numerous uh, associate degrees. Uh, she, he kept trying to demonstrate to himself and to the parole board that he had, that he had uh, taken responsibility for what he had done when he was 17, uh, felt enormous remorse. Well, he, he got a break and they did parole him uh, at, at the age of 22. He jumped right into college. Uh, Fozzie, I just, I can't make this stuff up. I recently attended his college graduation. He graduated wow. from college with honors. I did not graduate. I graduated from college, but not with honors. And now he's, <laughs> he's, he's earning his PhD. Um, wow. And we have not heard the last of, from this guy because he's, he's just a phenomenal thing. So, you know, he did what we, what anybody does in survival. They, they stay out of trouble. They get a job. They work hard. They show up five minutes early and meet and stay till the boss, um, you know, is their, the work is need, uh, done. The work that they need to do is all done. Um, and they just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And they have a, they have a goal. They have a dream that they want to, uh, and a big dream they want to accomplish. Yeah, I think that's important is having something in front of you that you know you have to work towards. Having perseverance, I think, is important, but I think you always have to have that goal of what you're working towards. Not having a goal doesn't take you very far, does it? Yeah, yeah. And and write it down. Stick it on your bathroom mirror. A goal not written is only a wish. You know, take those, think about that goal really carefully, write it down, stick it on your bathroom mirror somewhere where you're going to see it every day. And just don't give up. Just just go with it. Yeah. So I would like to talk a little bit more about thriving. Um, can you give us some stories of people that you've worked with that are just thriving beyond your expectations? Well, sure. Um, I mentioned Leo Fender. Leo Fender um, invented the electric guitar and the uh, Fender Strat and uh, Telecaster. Leo grew up, he was born in Fullerton, where I'm from. Uh, he was born literally in a barn because uh, the family hadn't constructed the house yet. They had a citrus, citrus and vegetable um, farm. And he, uh, when he was eight years old, he fell off his dad's uh, truck that they used to haul the vegetables and hit his eye on a picket fence. And he was half blind. He had one good eye and, and one uh, and a glass eye. And then when he got a little older, an amplifier blew out his hearing. So he, he couldn't really hear. He was mostly deaf. He could hear a little bit with uh, with hearing aids. So he had some, some significant disabilities. But um, what Leo did is he had a little radio shop on up on Harbor Boulevard that's still there. And um, he was listening to a band play during the, the war time uh, to raise money for the war bonds. And he noticed that everybody could be heard really nicely. The drums could be heard, the vocals with the amplifier and the, uh, and the, tr and the horns, but this poor guitar player was playing this acoustic guitar and nobody could hear them. And he felt, he felt bad for this guy. So he went back to his radio shop and got this idea to electrify a guitar and create the world's first electric guitar. And wow. I can, yeah, that, that was it. It took off. Uh, it didn't take off. Everybody laughed at his invention. They called them boat paddles. And uh, today that is a billion dollar a year business. Um, but Leo was 
was a post-traumatic thriver. He had his knockdowns in life with his glass eye and, and all his disabilities, but he, he got this goal to get electric guitars out there and, and he just stuck with that goal. And he did exactly what we talked about. He had a meditative practice in the morning where he'd soak in a hot tub. Um, he spoke to his wife about all everything that was going on. He didn't speak to everyone about all his stuff. didn't go public with it, but uh, had somebody he could sit in the fire with. And uh, one day somebody put 300, he was living in a mobile home. So, uh, he had sold one of his businesses, had $300 million put into his uh, banking account. And I got a quiz question for you. Guess, guess where he moved with $300 million? Back to his farm. He didn't move. He was completely oh. content. <laughs> he was completely happy and content in his mobile home. Um, he was not materialistic at all. That's what wow. drivers look like. They have a value system. They're not trying to show off or trying to put on a show. They just are, uh, they know what they, who they are, they know what they want. And they're, they're, it's not about trying to impress other people. I think that is a very true statement. I love it. I, I think that's, uh, that's pretty fabulous. Um, so Dr. Bell, you're often called the master of disaster and you've worked on projects such as the World Trade Center, um, Sandy Hook, uh, O.J. Simpson's uh, trial, John Benet Ramsey, um, Katrina. Can you tell us stories, uh, maybe of thriving that you have picked up from your different um, work around the world? Sure, I'll tell you one that really hits home for me. I I got the case with the Bikini Atoll. That's where the U.S. detonated nuclear bombs for years uh, and detonated dozens of nuclear bombs. I was there. uh, It's a beautiful tropical area, just stunningly gorgeous. And our little boat landed on an island that hadn't been inhabited in 50 years. And there were ruins of churches and houses and so forth around the island. And our little group was sitting there by the boat and I looked down the beach and I saw this gentleman sitting all by himself on a coconut tree log by the, by the water. And he just looked like, uh, uh, he looked very reflective. And I thought, I I wonder if he needs somebody to talk to, I don't know. So I kind of left the group and I wandered down the beach and I, I introduced myself and uh, said, hi, I'm Randall Bell. And, and, uh, he, his name was John. And I said, do you mind if I sit down? I said, sure. He's a very warm, nice, kind man. And we just started talking and he, he hadn't been back to his island in a very long time. And he was looking off in the direction where he had seen, as he described it, two suns that came up. One was a regular sun, one was an, an atomic bomb. And the fallout came over the village that night and uh, all the kids were playing in it like it was snow. Nobody knew what, really what it was. Very sadly, John's daughter passed away a few days later mm-hmm. in a in a military hospital from radiation sickness, and he mm-hmm. was he was just as any parent would be. He was just absolutely uh, devastated, even after decades. When I talked to him, and he set a goal, and I can tell you, he kept that goal moving forward. And I worked on that case for seven years with the help of John and, and other folks, and because of John's vision. I testified in front of the Nuclear Claims Tribunal twice because they didn't believe me the first time. And I came back and, and uh, g- gave them everything they, they wanted. They delivered every single dime of uh, my computations, was, which was a $2 billion verdict to help rebuild wow. the islands. 
So that was well, and and the impressiveness of it goes to to John and people like him who kept that dream going of saying what happened here is wrong and forgetting about us is wrong. Com, you know, contaminating our islands with radioactive radioactive poison is wrong. And uh, I just I just crunched the numbers. I had a minor role to play in that, but but it was really people like John that just have that vision and keep going forward. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. That's um, it's pretty amazing. So um, I want to talk a few minutes about COVID nineteen. Um, we have about maybe eight nine minutes left of the show, and I want to talk a little bit about COVID because. I do think that COVID has traumatized quite a few people. Um, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. And, and not only folks like me and many others that got it and got knocked down, but, the, the, you know, the kids. I mean, imagine being as a kid, I could imagine not going to school and playing with my friends and not wrestling in the playground. You can't even touch them. You have to wear masks, which are uncomfortable. It's been traumatizing throughout all, all of society. Yeah. So what advice would you give people who have been traumatized by COVID-19? How would you recommend that they deal with the trauma? Well, we get, I'm going to answer your, your great question this way. In, in our office, we get the biggest, nastiest disasters around the world, and they're very complex. We Just this week, we got another verdict for $1.8 billion. Um, we, we understand the complexities of trauma, including things like COVID. And we have a motto in our boardroom, and it says, the more complex the case, the more we get back to basics. And going back to the fundamentals is, is the answer. COVID is very complex. It's very nasty. And, and anybody who dismisses it as just another bad flu never had it. Let me tell you, it's not like any flu I ever had. Um, getting back to the basics, you do what we talked about. Maybe I'll add a couple more. You sit in the fire. You talk about it. it it's rough. And bottling up inside is not a recipe for success. Uh, you do the grounding exercises. They're really simple. Uh, they're in the book. And, and um, you do the deep breathing exercises. It heals the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system in the brain. I explain all that in the book if you want to understand the physiology. But it has a very powerful healing effect um, with deep breathing exercises. Um, and then you set, uh, you set some goals, just like Jerry did, just like JC did, just like Leo Fender did. Write down a goal put it somewhere and make day-to-day steps towards reaching that goal. Um, You do things like that. Um, And you, you do all the, you know, get out in nature, get out and, and, and uh, that has a very calming effect for me. The beach is awesome or, or a lake or a river, you know, for me is very, very, very uh, helpful. Find, find kind of your happy place and go there, you know, and be aware that, that hey, our mood is being drawn down by this thing. Let's, let's fight that, um, that problem and, and do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I like going back to basics. I think that's a really important uh, point that you made, because I, I think when things get too complex, it's really important to kind of peel away the things that don't really matter anymore peel away the things that are not important and really focus on the, the things that do matter that, you know, your family, maybe having those dinners together again, because with COVID those were taken away as well. You know, those family dinners were taken away. So just going back to basics, I think is a really important uh, point to be made. Um, 
So we have a few minutes left before um, the show ends. Is there any advice that you'd like to give any points that you'd like to talk about before we end the show? Well, you know, I've, I've sat, uh, I'll share something I learned when I sat at the kitchen table with Nicole Brown Simpson's family is that uh, Denise and Tanya and Dominique and Mr. And Mrs. Brown were really wonderful people. Um, and they shared something I, I, I think they would be happy with me passing along is that in the aftermath of losing their daughter and their sister to a horrific murder, um, each of them had good days and bad days. And so when we're having a good day, that's, that's terrific. You know, reach out to those who aren't having such a great day. And if we're having a bad day, accept some help, reach out for help, talk about it. Um, don't go and, um, burrow down and think we're doing, do some, we're doing something noble and dignified by bottling up on our, our feelings. Um, that just creates a war internally and that war, it never ends well. So accept some help um, and, and find somebody who will help, help us and accept it. Um, that's okay. Don't be too proud to, to accept help. And, and also always, regardless of where we are, there's opportunities to help others who are less fortunate than ourselves. I, I think that's why for me, going into a prison, going into a homeless shelter is such a profound spiritual experience because um, you know, we all have uh, rough stuff going on in life, including me and, and everybody, but finding somebody who's on in the margins of society and maybe uh, lending a helping, helping hand to these folks, uh, that's one of the, if not the most satisfying thing I've ever done in my life. That, that's an, a suggestion I might have for others. Thank you so much. Um, so today we talked to Dr. Randall, Randall Bell, and if you'd like to get his book, uh, post-traumatic thriving, the art, science, and stories of resilience, please go to drbell.com. You can also purchase his other books. Um, leave one's called Me, We, Do, Be, The Four Cornerstones of Success, Leo Fender, and Real Estate Damages. So feel free to go to drbell.com and purchase a copy of those books. <clears throat> and if you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to go to executivefunctioncoachaz.com. You can also send uh, questions that we can read on the show um, to uh, the email directly associated with the, we uh, with the website. You can register or subscribe, actually, rather, to um, our upcoming magazine, Executive Function Magazine. Uh, make sure you go back and uh, click on that email. You need to confirm your email. So once you do register or subscribe for the uh, magazine, feel free to go back and and. Um, make sure that you uh, click on that email so that we can send you uh, a copy of the magazine. It is a free magazine. It's digital, it's international, and um, it is quarterly. So our next, uh, our first issue will be coming out January 10th of 2022. We're very excited. We have a really awesome lineup of uh, people writing um, articles for us from um, advocacy to ADHD, autism, nutrition, college admissions process. So we have a phenomenal um, lineup. So once again, that website is executivefunctioncoachaz.com. You can also call me at 480-707-3356 or 480-648-1122. And um, next week, make sure you get, uh, get a chance to listen to Parenting Pulse. We're going to talk about modeling behavior. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.
Thank you for tuning in to Focus on Success. Please join your host, Fazia Costi, for another program next Wednesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.